Hello, I'm Alex Zane, film journalist, movie fan, and your host for a trip to the movies. I'm currently in our podcast studio, a mile beneath the streets of London, and in a moment, my guest this week, the brilliant filmmaker Jay Blakeson, will be talking about his fantastic new Disney Plus crime series, Culprits, and taking us on his perfect night out at the cinema. Thank you for downloading the podcast. This episode is brought to you by My Limitless, the subscription membership from Odeon Cinemas. From only $14.99 a month, you can see all the movies at Odeon whenever you like. With a three-month minimum term, the possibilities are limitless. Oh, that explains the name. But that's not all. Think of those cracking recliners at Odeon Lux Cinemas. Think of access to movies before they're officially released. Think of 10% off all the food and drink you'd like, including at their Oscars bars. Sign up online today by going to odeon.co.uk. Go on, give them a whirl and see how much fun life as a cinema goer can be when you are truly limitless. And if you'd like a pair of free tickets to head to your nearest Odeon, stick around after the interview and I'll tell you how you can get your hands on some. Also, if you'd like to watch today's interview in glorious Technicolor, do head over to our Trip to the Movies YouTube channel. And please, while you're there, hit subscribe and help us grow the pod into a giant temple of film. For all the latest updates and to get in touch with us, you'll find us at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod on all social media. Right then, time to introduce today's guest who I interviewed just yesterday on Zoom. So let's do this. Hello and welcome to A Trip to the Movies, where each week a special guest takes us on their perfect night out at the cinema. This week we are joined by an incredible writer and director whose first feature was the brilliant British thriller The Disappearance of Alice Creed. His most recent film, 2020's wonderful drama I Care A Lot, saw Rosamund Pike go on to win a Golden Globe for her performance. And now he's back with a thrilling eight-part crime series, Culprits, which has just hit Disney Plus and sees Nathan Stewart Jarrett and Gemma Arterton dealing with the fallout from a daring heist. Here to tell us about that and take us on his perfect night out at the movies, it is the hugely talented Jay Blakeson. Jay, welcome to the show. Wonderful to have you on. How, how are you doing this afternoon? You well? I am very well, thank you, Alex. How are you? Yeah, good, good. Excited to chat to you about culprits. Um, so let's talk culprits. Let's just dive straight in because it's just launched on Disney Plus here in the UK and Ireland. Um, it's brilliant. It's a crime drama. It's based on an anthology book of the same name. You are the writer, the director, the showrunner. Um, it's an eight-part series. For those who don't know, for those who are experiencing the word culprits for the first time, give us a brief synopsis of what we're chatting about here. So culprits is a crime thriller, uh, and it's about a man called Joe who's living his best life in uh, the Pacific Northwest, and he, uh, he's he got a secret that he's not telling his family, uh, because he did something three years ago, a bad thing, and that bad thing is coming back to haunt him. Yep. It's tense. I mean, if if you if you didn't pick that up from what Jay just said there, this is a tense show. Um, I called it a crime drama. There are some, including yourself, there's some serious crime credentials behind the camera. So there's yourself um, and producer Stephen Garrett, uh, who, uh, for those who don't know, he created the hit TV show Spooks. He produced The Night Manager. And you've known him since your debut feature, right? The Disappearance of Alice Creed. Yeah, yeah. So he read that when that was a script um, and uh, he liked it. And then off the back of that, he asked me if 
I would adapt a book for him. Uh, and then that almost got made as a film and never did, but we enjoyed working together. So we sort of stayed in touch ever since. And about six years ago, he came to me with this idea and we've been sort of slowly working on it ever since. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's an example of just how long it takes to get a TV show from script, from idea to screen. So that's six years on and off working on this. Yeah, I mean, six, six years ago was the initial conversation. Then I wrote the pilot about five years ago. Um, and we were just about to go take it out and try and sell it. And then uh, my film, I Care A Lot, got a green light. And so we went. And made, I went and made that. Mm. I sort of disappeared for a year and a half, two years and made that. And then I came back. And as soon as we finished that, uh, we went, took it out. And then it got set up. Disney wanted it. And we're off to the races. I'm going to mention I Care A Lot uh, in a little while because I absolutely adore that film but let's stick with culprits for the moment so like my understanding is Stephen garrett he secures the rights to this book and then by his own account the first call he makes is to you how was that call from your end <laughs> it was nice uh it's nice to hear from him i haven't heard from him for a bit and so we had a cup of tea and he was telling me about it and he was sort of you know teasing me a little bit you know what i mean telling me a, a little bit about the uh the concept and then um he just asked me if i'd want to read it so i said yeah obviously because it sounded intriguing uh and then he sent me like a day later he sent me an email saying you know here it is give it a read uh and i, I don't know about you but sometimes when i'm out and about and i get an email and i'm sort of in the middle of like doing my shopping or something he sort of forgot forgotten about the email by the time you get home and so like uh <laughs> I, uh, I, I'd forgotten about it for the rest of that day. And then I was like really busy for like a couple of weeks. And then, and then he, ch he chased me saying, uh, um, you know, not just nudging. Have you, have you read that? Have you read that thing I sent you? And I thought, Oh no, I haven't. I better read it. So what I'll do is I set a whole day apart, whole day aside and I'll read it. Um, thinking, you know, I'll read the whole book. I'll get a real sense of it and I'll get back to him. And then, uh, so, you know, it was like, I thought I can't do it today. Can't do it tomorrow. So I'll do it on like whatever it was like Thursday. And so, you know, sat a whole day apart, came home after sort of, you know, dropped my kids off at school. And there was like, here we go. I'm going to read this book now. Open the email. And it was a two-page document, uh, just sort of <laughs> outlining the whole thing. And uh, I thought, well, I'm going to look a little sort of stupid now because I've been saying, no, I'm too busy. I'm too busy, too busy to read two pages of A4. So, so I quickly read it. And when I read it, I was like, oh, no, there's something here. There's something really interesting here. And what, what, was there on that two pages it wasn't the whole book obviously but it was just like a a very sort of like um skeletal sort of pressy of what what it was about because the book is a an anthology of short stories each each with a writer taking a different character uh but the idea of of that those short stories is that all, they're all connected by this thing they did in the past so all of these characters are out in the world have all done this bad thing in the past but now they've all scattered across the globe with their sort of like ill-gotten gains and they're recreating themselves now i I just really love the idea that, you know, that question that you ask yourself and you can ask the viewers or ask anybody who's talking to, to me about it, like yourself, of like, what would you do if you had like a massive bag of money and you could go anywhere in the world and be anyone you wanted? Because, you know, you go to some very quick things of like, you know, just sort of luxury and fun, but then that doesn't last. You know, you've got to make this money last a long time. You've got to build a whole new life. And what would you do? And you have, there's some people who plan, there's some people who don't, some people who want just normality and there's some people who want just like you know high octane um and the idea of all these different characters choosing different different things that sort of try and satisfy a need they have in themselves was just a really interesting way into character and into the idea of a heist so it's not it's not really like the will they get away with it because we already know that sort of halfway through the um first episode uh but it's more like you know why did they want this and did it did it work for them and what has it done to them you know are they mm. 
are they are they happy or are they totally paranoid? Are they, you know, are they having like the best life they could possibly live or do they regret doing it and they miss their old life? It's all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, just I mean, we I touched on the tension already. We're going to come back to it, but just to give you an idea of how how tense this is, uh, it, it features the first episode features a planning application meeting, and it's still edge of your seat stuff. That is that is a testament to your writing and direction. And um, Stephen Garrett said, uh, "You have seen this is his quote about you and why you were perfect for this. You've seen every crime movie and thriller. You can't catch Jay out. Now I, I'm not going to try." But was this was this an immediate yes based on that? I mean, I think there's never an immediate yes because you need to know that you can do it, right? You can want to do it and you can be interested in stuff, but it's like there's a very different between like, oh, this is a film I'd really like to see, hmm. you know, which is two hours of your life at some <laughs> point, or is this a is this a thing I want to make, which is three years of your life, and it's a very different commitment. Um, so it has to be just more than that initial sort of like. Um, hunger for it it has to you have to sort of see you know sort of the mountains and the mists like miles away of like you know everything's over there and you know the closer you get the clearer it will be um but you know i i, I don't think i've probably seen every single thriller but i do watch a lot of films basically i've seen lots and lots and lots and lots of films including a lot of thrillers uh i just really like thrillers because thrillers you know they're one of the only genres that have like real visceral visceral physical impact on you when you watch them you know you can you can feel it in your body what this film is doing to you. and there's other you know like a, a a comedy will do that as well you know that you can't stop yourself from laughing or crying with laughter watching something's really funny so you know if it's working just by looking at the crowd and you can see them sort of like tensing up and sit, literally sit on the edge of the seat and they lean forward they lean forward out of their seat or they bring their hands up you know close to their face um and there's something really rewarding about that that you know, it gets them. Even if they don't want to be entertained, you can get somebody with a thriller. And, I, and me, I can get got as well. You know, I, I love, you know, crime thrillers or crime dramas and that whole world I think is, is really interesting because you can sort of live in a world that you don't live in, that you can sort of live, live the other life. You can sort of live vicariously this sort of dangerous life that you, you haven't chosen. You've chosen this safe life over here, which uh, kind of seems a bit boring and a bit bland. I say, like, go and vicariously live this criminal life, knowing that you can come back to the safety of, of your normal life. It's a bit like going on a roller coaster or something. You know what I mean? It's like, you, it feels like you're falling and you're going to crash to your death, but you know you're not. <laughs> but that feeling, you, you can live vicariously in that feeling for a minute, and then you can get off the roller coaster and go back to your boring life. And the catharsis of that experience stays with you. Uh, and in th and this case, with culprits, uh, the people we are living uh, living vicariously through. Uh, you've got a great cast. Um, I'm I'm a huge fan of uh, Nathan um, Nathan Stewart Jarrett. I think he's brilliant. Never seen him in a role like this. This is this is a completely different Nathan to I've ever seen on screen. You've got Gemma Arterton in there, who you've obviously worked with before on the disappearance of Alice Creed. Were you writing with these actors in mind? No, no, I tend not to write with actors in mind uh, because if they're busy or they can't do it or they don't want to do it, then, you know, you have to suddenly reimagine the whole show with another actor in mind. You know, right. what, what I like to do is just write. Obviously, you have actors that you like, but you, if you write in their voice, it's hard to unimagine that. You know, certain actors like, I don't know, if you think of George Clooney, the rhythm of his speech pattern. If you're writing a script thinking about him, you're automatically going to write it like George Clooney speaking. Um, and then so if you get someone else who's entirely different, then you have to sort of rewrite it <laughs> in your head and yep. and on the page. Um, so no, I just write the, the roles 
as I see them. And, you know, sometimes the roles start to write themselves. You know, that, that's the best part of writing is where the, the, the snowball's going down the hill and then the the characters sort of take over. You sort of know where you think they should go, but the characters sometimes pull you a different way. And so they really grow into their own thing, especially on something this long. Um, when you're writing it, they they sort of find out who they are on the page. And then you just go and find like the best actor who can do all the things you need for that role. Um, and Nathan, as you say, you know, how exciting is it that you can see him in something totally different? You can see an actor that you kind of know, but see them in a totally different role. And they, you know, they're so like ambiguous and interesting. And he really knocks it out of the park and, you know, delivers this kind of empathetic, but tough and scary, but sort of tragic but heroic and you know he's like is he a good guy is he a bad guy it's like he's got all that wrapped up in him because you don't come to him with any preconceptions really yeah he he can sort of guide you through this story in the most exciting way because you have no idea where his character's going and and what's it like for you as a a writer and director i mean nathan and Gemma artisan they share an incredible scene one of my favorite scenes a very quiet scene in the first series um episode one rather uh whether in front of the rothkos uh rothkos at um the Tate Britain, wonderful scene between the two of them. What's it like for you when you see actors performing the script that you sat in front of a laptop, most most likely on your own, tapping away, and then to see it brought to life in that moment? I mean, for me, that's the absolute best part of the whole thing. You know, um, when you're sitting there looking at the monitor and that magic happens. Because you know, if if you've got actors like Nathan and Gemma and you're just sitting there watching them and you give them a bit of direction, but most of the time they've thought about it, they've studied it, um, and you just kind of watch the watch the screen and think, wow, did I, did I write that? But this is pretty good. <laughs> you know, this, is, this is working really well. And especially like in that room, I wrote it to be in the Rothko room in the Tate. And, you know, everybody who read it was like, oh, we won't get that. We won't be able to do that. But, you know, slowly you chip away and you seek permissions. And you go through the, the labyrinth of everything, paperwork to try and make it so. And then we could, we, you know, we looked at alternatives just in case, but then we could do it. But we could only do it for a very short amount of time after hours so you know after it closed but before midnight we were in there we had to do the whole scene um and it was just great because everybody was so focused uh and you got those amazing paintings in the background you know ian had done a really good job with the costumes like you know nathan's costume clashes hers goes with the paintings and you know he doesn't look like he belongs she does and the way that we should you know the way it was shot the way that philip lit it it all just kind of was exactly what i wanted it to be and that doesn't always happen a lot of the time you're running around just grabbing footage the weather's wrong. You've lost your location. You're shooting it in like maybe like one side of it in one location, another side of it in a different location. Um, but this one was, you know, it was the exact location. It was exactly the the feel of the scene and exactly the kind of performances I wanted. So when that's happening, you're watching it. All you're doing there is thinking, I hope I've got enough time to get enough takes. Really, but <laughs> apart from that, no, I knew I knew we had a good thing as soon as as soon as we did that, and that's one of my favourite scenes too of the whole show. So, oh, it's 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 great. Um. Um, would you call yourself, because this is a term that um, I, I understand is applied to certain directors uh, when they're described as an actor's director. They enjoy the process of working with their cast and developing those performances rather than just the, the staging of the shots, etc. And I ask because obviously you previously worked with Rosamund Pike on, as I said before, the brilliant I Care A Lot. And if anyone hasn't seen it, I suggest you go and seek it out immediately. It's fantastic. She went on to win the Golden Globe for her performance in that. So is that something you consider part of your toolkit on a set, working that closely with actors, getting these great performances? I mean, yeah, that's the thing that I really love to do. I mean, I think all directors have to do that. You know, if you're not doing that, you're not doing the full job. 
I mean, I love things to look amazing as well. You know, that I come with a very specific look that I want, um, but we prepare that all in advance. And when we get on set, you know, it's just trying to work with the actors and trying to make the scene work. Um, and, you know, I, all actors are very, very different from each other. They all have different different processes, different methods, different preparation. You know, some people do do not want like to see me anywhere near them. They want to be sort of lost in the scene. Other other actors like having a director nearby, so you can sort of like interact as you're doing it. Some people don't like to look at monitors after they've shot something. Other actors like to watch the whole take back, and so you need you need to sort of like develop this relationship where you 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 know at the beginning you sort of start to understand how they work, how they work best, and then. For me, it's just trying to make this environment sort of the safest place where they can relax and trust me. And I think that trust is really important because I can do anything I want with their performance. You know, I can take anything that they try that fails. I can put it in, put it in the show. You know, they they have no say over whether they'll say I didn't like that, and you're like, well, tough, right? <laughs> so I'm putting it in. You know, and you forget in the edit. You know, but I I I don't like doing that. What I like to do is really sort of work with the actors so they're very very comfortable and they know that if they try something that doesn't work and they they can tell me, well, I didn't like, I didn't like that. Can I try it again? Um, that they have that freedom, that freedom to play a bit. Because very rarely do you get rehearsal anymore. Um, you used to get rehearsal a bit more, but everybody's schedules are so tight. There's so much work going on. People are bouncing around the world that you normally get maybe maybe one day to do something. And that's just to talk about character, read through the scripts. I'd love to get like a couple of weeks of rehearsal with with all my actors on my next one. And I always say I want it, and they always say yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and then we never, we never. They're always yeah. like just finishing something or having to start yeah. something. Or they have to go to an awards ceremony or something. Yes. But you know, I I really enjoy that part. You know, that's that's what we're all doing it for. We're going, we're doing all the location scouting, we're doing all of the the production design, we're bringing all the lights in just for that that thing in the middle where you know you do hours and hours and hours of work, and then these actors have I don't know like ninety seconds mm -hmm. to make magic after two hours of this crew work, and the crew put put everything down and wait, and we all watch. Whereas these people. You know, in a, you know, they have to go. Okay, I know you've been waiting for two hours. Go. You've got one minute. Bear your souls and make me cry. You know, yeah. and it's hard. It's really hard. And I, I love actors for that. I love the vulnerability that they give you and the trust they give you. So yeah, I'd love to be seen as an as an actor's director. But you'd have to ask the actors I work with. That's me. It's, it's like saying, Are you, "Have you got a good sense of humor?" It's up to other people to say it. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like when people go, "Hey, I'm the crazy one." It's like let other people say that. Don't say I'm the crazy one yourself. And it never it never sits well. Um, so I mean, to talk about uh, Rosamund Pike winning uh, the Golden Globe, how do you feel in that moment when you see an actor who's been in a film you've directed reading words you've written and then achieving that? Oh, that was amazing. You know, that was really amazing. I mean, it was just a shot to show he was in lockdown because if he wasn't in lockdown, I would have been there and she would have <laughs> been there in the room, but we were all in lo in, in our offices uh, or in hotels or somewhere. Um, but no, it was amazing. It was amazing because she, you know, our film only came out like a couple of weeks before before the Golden Globes and there was like a real sort of consensus of who was going to get nominated. And like Rosamund was a surprise nomination. Nobody, you know, and we were, we were so excited she just got nominated. Mm -hmm. And there was a clear favorite of who was going to win, and it wasn't Rosamund. Uh, and so when when they said her name, it was you know, I, at first you can't believe it. You're like, I, did I imagine that? Am I just like wishful thinking? Is my head saying that? And then no, you're just you know, she worked so hard on that film, and you know, it it was an amazing performance because she, like I said, she just sort of trusted me, and she just went for it. You know what I mean? I, it's a very specific tone that film, and we were shooting it completely out of order, so it's not like you you see. You see what you see on the screen. We're shooting the, the end, we're shooting the beginning, we're sort of jumping around in time. So she really has to trust me because we're moving so fast that it's like, this is what the tone needs to be. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard 
sometimes to convince actors to be so unlikable as characters. <laughs> yeah. But she just relished it. She loved it. She had this sort of like this, uh, I don't know, like a fox in the hen house sort of look on her face the whole time. And I think she really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I mean, you're talking about watching your actors on, you know, Say Your Lies. There's a scene between her and Chris Messina where, again, it's like another 10-minute scene where they're sort of sparring at each other in her office. Um, and and she's feeling him out and he's trying to threaten her. And the two of them were just having, like, so much fun. And it was it was such, such a joy to watch it. Like, you know, time after time after time, you know, now and again they would do something to try and throw each other off and they'd do it back. And no, it was... You know, it was great to see her when I was so, so happy. Yeah. Yeah. Again, people, if anyone hasn't seen it, I care a lot. Can't recommend it enough. It is a movie that I've sat with people and shown people and people have a very visceral reaction to her character in that film. It's it's brilliant. And to go back to culprits, though. So, I mean, you touched on this uh, in terms of how you are very particular about how you set up a shot and what is appearing on screen in a shot. And I feel watching culprits, that is very apparent. There's a real accuracy to certain shots. And I know Variety uh, previously described you in your ability to build tension as like Alfred Hitchcock, which that's, I mean, that's got to be a nice day when you read that. <laughs> but it's, it is an overused term, edge of your seat. But genuinely, that first episode, especially the middle section where Nathan's character, Joe, is basically doing something he shouldn't be doing in the middle of the night. There's a car crash and it's, it's anxiety inducing almost watching it. Is that something that you, do you know? I mean, obviously you do know. Do you know how to create that on the page or is that something that is purely created through the direction of a scene? I mean, it should be there on the page to start with. I mean, the scripts, uh, every time I write a script, I try and write it so that the experience of reading it, mm. the feeling of reading it will be the same as the feeling of watching it. So, so you know, I'm very careful about how I format my scripts. So they, the slow stuff, will read more slowly and the fast stuff will be turning pages quickly. So you get a sense of how it's going to feel to watch it. Um, obviously, that it's quite hard to translate that to the screen, especially on like a, a TV schedule, not a movie schedule. Um, and, you know, that sequence that you're talking about, you know, we, we shot that in various countries across months and months and months and months. I mean, we storyboarded quite a lot of it so we could see where all the jigsaw pieces were. But then you get to a place and you just have to sort of get 10 shots in 20 minutes all handheld just to sort of get the constituent parts. So, you know, that was shot with, oh, man, we shot the beginning of the, 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 the crash you're talking about was our first day of shooting. So like on the first day of shooting, we had like eight cameras uh, and nine cars that we could crash. And, uh, we had like a wet down in the street and we sort of closed the whole block down. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that was quite a baptism of fire to, to go straight wow. to that, but we got it and it looked great. Uh, but then from there, we were just picking up bits and pieces. And so like a lot of the interiors that you see of, of machinery and stuff like that, uh, you know, that that's all in the UK months and months and months later, because we could only get us, you know, the bare minimum when we're in Canada and then come back to the UK. And so, so it's, it's to start with, you're just trying to get it. You're just trying to get it and you're trying to talk to the actor and you've got to feel it instinctively on the, on the set, but then it's all about when you get into the edit. It's all about how how you keep that balloon up in the air and then how close you want to watch it come floating down towards the ground and almost touch the ground just before you pad it up again into the air. <laughs> so, you know, I was working with John Dwelly on that episode as the editor and he did a fantastic job of building that tension. And then you have people who come in uh, afterwards, like Mark Hannon, who did the score and his score is really telling you kind of like, you know, he's in danger right now. And then it's like, he's in even more danger right now. And then the sound design is 
crucial because you really need to feel what he's feeling. And so there's there's sort of like a squidginess, there's a crunchiness, there's a there's a danger to the squeak, there's a squeaks and squawks of of like machinery and wheels and things like that, and the impact of a car. Uh, so it's just all those things when they work together. I mean, like little by little, you get in there that you you sometimes feel like. I don't know, man. I think this could go a little bit faster. I think I think I'm expecting that beat. And like, what do you think? And it's just constant conversation that you have while you're shooting, but then you have it while you're editing. And we, you know, we edited that edited that episode for weeks, and then you know the post production process of it with the VFX and everything went on for months. So we were watching it again and again and again and again. And we're always trying to add a bit more, more tension, more tension, more excitement, more clarity. Um, and it's just that. It's just you. It's like sculpting. You just got to keep on looking around and honing it. You know, you can get the basic shape very quickly, but then you've got to really, you know, nip and tuck to to make it really the thing that works the best. Well, at work it does. It's a it's a it's a fantastic opening to the series. Like I said, it's on Disney Plus now. Eight episodes, and it's a one and done. It's 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 basically. I think you've described it as an eight our movie it's not one of these series that goes look at all this and then oh you'll have to wait for season two to find out what happens this is it yeah i mean i always sort of like suck <laughs> suck my breath in a bit when people say when you hear in interviews people say yeah it's like an eight-hour movie you always hear that when people are talking about television but right um but i think it is I mean, this one is it's structured <laughs> like an act structure i mean i sort of very much structured it rather than sort of starting lots of middle and end we we have like a three-act structure like a movie but there's just more time to to sit with the side characters but yeah absolutely we get to the end and i wanted to tell the whole story and wanted to get to the end didn't want to do that thing where you get to the last episode and it's like you know suddenly you find the sword of destiny and it's it's like well <laughs> the whole thing's called sword of destiny why didn't you find that in episode one you know what i mean <laughs> we wanted to we wanted to get to get to the end we to tell a whole story and make it really truly satisfying i mean you know some you know there, there are survivors of this show the earth doesn't blow up so you know if it's a massive success then disney i'm sure will have thoughts but mm. The intention for Steve and I was to just get it, get it finished, and tell the whole story, so then people can just like, you know, not be left um, on tenterhooks. Yeah, slightly angry, going, "Come on, the, the, the sort of destiny situation." Yeah, I get it, I get it, I get it. And we're going to talk more about culprits, no doubt, as we go through this journey. But right now, Jay, it's time to leave this reality and enter a dimension of pure film, where our virtual cinema awaits. You are our guide. We are your audience let's go on a trip to the movies so we push open the doors to our temple of film and find ourselves in the foyer there's an excited buzz as there always is in a cinema foyer the hum of anticipation now it's your perfect cinema trip jay who have you picked living or dead to go with you well, I normally go by myself, so that's really boring because <laughs> uh, I quite, I quite like, quite like the sort of the uh, the monastic thing of just going to the cinema and enjoying on your own. But, but I took this as an opportunity. If I could summon someone from the dead, I'd want to bring somebody who'd love movies and made great movies, so I could talk, watch the movie, and afterwards talk about the movie. Mm. Uh, and so I chose Billy Wilder, the the great master Billy Wilder. The legend Billy Wilder, the director of classics like Some Like It Hot, Sunset Boulevard and The Apartment. And when did you first discover Billy Wilder? When did he enter your orbit? I think, you know, it's one of those things that you, it's like, so, I guess like the Beatles. You don't remember when you first heard them. They've just right. always been there. But I think it was probably when I was at university. I studied film at university. And we watched, like, we would watch maybe like three, four films a day, every day. And so we saw so many things. And I, in there, I mean, I probably would have seen 
some like it hot before that, but I saw The Apartment and then Double Indemnity um, when I was at university and they both just absolutely blew me away. He's sort of like, his his sort of use of dialogue, the very, very dark, cynical humour, the sort of puncturing of the American dream and the brilliant actors he worked with, you know, like uh, like Jack Lennon, Shirley MacLaine, Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, um, you know, the, and... All the, you know, it's just like classical Hollywood cinema that doesn't feel like classical Hollywood cinema. So you, you have the glamour, but it's always got this like slightly bitter aftertaste, which I, I find really satisfying. So he seems to have a point of view on everything, um, which is what I really love. That you can, even, even when his films don't work so well, you can really feel him in there. And, uh, you know, I think that's a mark of, a, of an impressive filmmaker. Yeah, we were talking about like yourself enjoying working with actors. I think famously Billy Wilder was very much an actor's director, wasn't he? I think like 14 or something. A lot of people, actors he worked with, went on to get Oscar nominations or go on to win Oscars as well. Yeah, I, some of that is the direction. Some of that is he was just a, such a brilliant writer, him and his collaborators, like his, his Diamond, that they, you know, they wrote such great scenes. And, you know, that's <clears throat> it's really hard to win an acting Oscar if you don't have the material. You know what I mean? If you don't have a great a great filmmaker, great scripts. I mean, it's possible. <clears throat> We've seen some really good performances in sort of mediocre films before. Uh, but, you know, there's such good material that it just shows off actors. And he loved it. You could tell he loved actors because he loved, he just sort of loved humanity. Like the good part of it, the bad part of it, the great middle grubby part of it. And like, I, that really, really appeals to me as well. And they're the kind of roles that I think people can see themselves, but they can also see sort of an access to a world they're not quite in. And you know, like someone like Jack Lemmon's, uh, character in the apartment, CC Baxter. He's almost sort of he he could see the doors opening, but you know there's people just in the way and he can't get in. He's sort of on the threshold of what he wants, and everybody in life feels like that. So when you see somebody portray something that you feel in yourself, and they portray it in a way that strikes to your heart, then you know you're gonna love that actor, and you're gonna that's you know that's one of the reasons they win awards. And, and as a, a writer director yourself, I mean, I think uh, Billy Wilder's epitaph on his, his gravestone at Westwood Cemetery in Los Angeles reads, I'm a writer, but then nobody's perfect. Obviously, paraphrasing, some like it hot, which is, a, I, I, I've tried to work it out. I, I, I'm guessing it's meant sort of ironically in the sense that he was he was more known rather than his visual style for his wonderful, like you say, dialogue um, and plot devices, wasn't he? Yeah, and I think, especially in Hollywood, like, the writer is not the top of the heap. You know what I mean? The director <laughs> yeah. is given... I mean, it's changing a bit now with the way the TV is, but the director has always kind of been seen as sort of the person who's made the movie. Uh, whereas actually, you know, the, the writer, if you think of, like, Aaron Sorkin's scripts, for example, you know, they're, they're so good and they're so distinctly him. You know, is a, you know, a Few Good Men is a, is a very Rob Reiner movie, but it's also a very Aaron Sorkin movie, as is Social Network. Fincher is the most directory director who's ever directed, but Sorkin is the most writerous ever written. So I think this may be, you know, his his joke is on the people looking down at it, who look down at writers all day. Mm. And so his, in, even in death, he's going, well, you didn't really like us, did you? <laughs> you know, and then saying a line, and then saying a line that he everybody knows because he wrote it. So he's like saying... Imagine the film without that line that I wrote, even though now you're still looking down on me. That's that's how I take it anyway. Yeah, when I yeah, yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah, um, it's it, it's it, it, is it. Do you actually enjoy the process of writing? And I mean, I guess it's different for yourself because you are writing with a view to direct, and you 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 have that wonderful. You're in that wonderful position of being able to direct your own scripts. But but writing can be such a, a, a for want of a, an age old adage, a cruel mistress. It's it's quite a difficult thing to do, isn't it? 
It is. I mean, it gets easier the more you do it, I would mm. say, because you get better at it and you know how to discipline yourself. At the very beginning, when I was writing, it was very hard. It's because it's lonely. So when it's not going well, it's just you on your own and there's no one to help. I mean, for culprits, we worked with a writer's room, which is the first time I've done that. And there's something so nice about having other writers there. And you can go in and say, look, I know, I know this, I know this, I know this. I don't know this. I'm sort of stuck for that. And then we can take an hour talking about what that is and we can get great, great ideas. And even if there's no good idea that's come up in the room. My brain has now moved past that roadblock, you know? And I've worked in collaboration with other writers before for, for that very reason, that like that part of it, when you're trying to generate ideas and get the, the sort of the proton accelerator moving faster, that's it's great to do it with other people. But yes, yeah, just sort of sitting in your own and then looking at that blank page is, it can be cruel, you know? But now I, you know, it's, now I don't mind because I, if I know I'm going to go away and make a movie, writing means I'm at home with my family. And it means <laughs> that I can, you know, I can work in my pajamas if I'm writing, which I can't do on set. Uh, not that I tried. Maybe I could. Maybe they let me do it. But I don't think it'd be very practical. Yeah, I guess. I guess as a director, if you turn up in your pajamas, uh, you're you're not lazy. You're eccentric. You are. It's 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 an affectation of your genius. Yeah. Um. All right. It's yourself and Billy Wilder going to the cinema together. Now there is a clock on the wall in the foyer. It reads a specific time. What time of day have we gone to the cinema? Um. Well, I like to go early. So if the cinema's open in the morning. I'll go in the morning, but most cinemas aren't open in the morning anymore. They used to be. So like early afternoon, just after lunch, have something to eat, see your tubby's not rumbling, and then go in the early afternoon. I mean, it's not it's not great because when you know when you have your own films come out, you want the cinema to be full all the time for every showing. But I quite like going to the cinema when it's not full. I quite like having most of it to myself where people aren't making noises. Uh, so like early afternoon, so when you come out, it's still, it's still light, and you have to squint when you come out. You kind of think, oh, wow, I just was in this like magical world of, that somebody else somebody else's creation and now I'm going back into the real world and it feels so bright and surreal um there's something about about that that I really love that it's like okay back to everyday life because if you go home you go straight straight to bed or something if you do it right at the end of the day you haven't got time to think about it and let it process I like I like to come out the cinema in the, af- the afternoon and then go for a little walk around them and just sort of think about it and if I'm with there with a friend who's a cinephile too we'll, we'll you know we'll chat about it for a couple of hours that's that's what I really like to do is just sort of like stew it over and not just sort of like that done move on you like a good mull. I get it. I get it. Yeah. I, twice in my life, I've been to screenings in the afternoon and had the whole place to myself. One was the Cameron Diaz, Thomas Jane romantic comedy, The Sweetest Thing. And the other was the Richard Gere thriller, horror thriller, The Mothman Prophecies. Um, although I think with that one, perhaps I could have gone at any time of day and I'd have been the only person there. I don't know it was that that popular, but it's quite a weird experience, isn't it? When you truly have a private screening room. Yeah. I always imagine that the projectionist will come down and go, do we really have to, can we just, can we not just call it a day? You know, I mean, I'm originally from Yorkshire and there are cinemas like in small, small places where they they will actually just not play the film if there's less than five people there. Um, Because they're like, well, you know, we're paying our our team more to be here than we're making for you to be here. So, you know, can you come back tomorrow when there might be more people? Um, but no, I love having the, uh, I love having a cinema kind of to my own or almost to my own because then you just, I don't know, it's, it's, I mean, yeah, people would say, well, then why don't you just stay at home and watch it if you don't want to be with a crowd of people? Yeah. I mean, with a comedy or with a thriller or with, if you're watching something like Scorsese's Cape Fear, you want to be with a, a crowd. Um, and one of my, my biggest regrets of I Care A Lot was that it came out in the pandemic and it was meant to be a theatrical release originally. And uh, I would have loved to see that with a crowd because I think a crowd would have had a real reaction, like turning on and turning against some of the 
the characters and sort of the twists and turns and reacting to them, that it would have been great to have seen that with a crowd. But I think, you know, for something that's like a, a drama or something that doesn't have that visceral reaction we are talking about before, something that is just you're losing yourself into another world, I think being on your own is lovely. <laughs> I mean, that's really interesting because obviously uh, the other, to, to flip reverse it, Culprits, which is a TV series, that got screened uh, just recently at the London Film Festival. So you had what I imagine is a, a rare experience of being able to watch your TV show on the big screen with a packed auditorium. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, it was such a gift. I mean, on the last, I did a thing for TV a few years ago that I didn't write, but I directed called Gunpowder, um, which is a three-parter. The, uh, the Kit Harrington one, the, the Guy Fawkes yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's about, it's about Guy Fawkes. It had Kit Harrington and Liv Tyler and Mark Gatiss in it. Um, and that was frustrating because like, it went out, but I was just sitting in my house and you're just looking at Twitter to see what people think about it. Mm. Um, the only good thing about that is then it was on Gogglebox. So I could see people watching it because it was on Gogglebox. <laughs> but but no, being at the London Film Festival was was amazing because, you know, we we played it for friends and family, but this was just like a, a paying audience. It's just people who'd like was interested in seeing it, read a bit about it, come along. And just the, it played really, really well in the room and people really went for it. And there's it's just such a relief, you know, because when you watch something, you really like it that you've made. You know, you're so close to it. You, you're, you're, you're sort of aiming for something, getting as close to the thing that you're trying to do. And even if you get super close, you, you just don't know until it gets in front of people. And then, you know, to go to the London Film Festival and watch it, as you say, on like a massive screen in front of a big crowd with the, with the sound, proper sound system all turned up. Yeah, it's a, it's a joy just to watch it in that situation, but to watch it with people sort of like gasping and jumping and things like that, it's, uh, I know, it's amazing. Uh, all right then so we're going in the afternoon afternoon just after lunch to the cinema it's going to be a quiet screening for the moment now you have booked the tickets thank you very much jay i appreciate that where in the auditorium are we going to be sitting well my usual place is sort of halfway back sort of near the left aisle that's that's where i'm going uh, that's very <laughs> very very specific very yeah. specific <laughs> i mean there's two reasons for that one I'd like to be as close to the middle as possible, but I don't like to be sort of trapped in. You know what I mean? Right. If if you, you want to get out, you don't want to have to make like all the rows stand up because you're then that guy that everybody hates in the cinema. Um, so it's good to be, it's good to have like, you know, your sort of like a clear exit if you need it. Um, and then also it's because I kind of hear slightly better out of one ear than the other ear. So if I sit right <laughs> okay. in the middle, everything sounds like it's coming from one side. So if I sit to the left, it sounds like it's coming from the middle. So it's practical and it's, you know, anxiety that keeps me left yeah i'm i'm completely with you jay i i'm I, you're one of me one of us we're together i'm an isla as well i cannot be trapped in at the cinema every time people go it's the middle of the middle i'm like fair enough that's that's your thing for me i have to be able to escape in case of any i don't know what whatever happens i can't be trapped in and like yourself i get that social anxiety of going excuse me excuse me excuse me and knowing as you're in the toilet you have to do the whole thing in reverse it's awful Awful. It'll ruin us. It ruins it for me. All right. We're sitting on the left in the middle, but near the left aisle. Final thing we need before we leave the foyer and start making our way towards the auditorium is, oh, the air is full of wonderful smells. All manner of snacks and foodstuffs are available at the various counters. What are you choosing to eat? Nothing. <laughs> Just Nothing. <laughs> I, nothing absolutely nothing unless i'm starving hungry then i'll eat it during the trailers but yep. i really you know if i'm watching a film i want to completely lose myself to it i mean i will you know i i don't really want to hear other people eating i'm sure 
it's fine. Cinemas have to make money. We want cinemas mm-hmm. to make money. We want them to stay open. We want them to keep showing films on the big screen. And I know like them selling their food is a big part of that. But I just want to get lost in it. And so like, you know, keep hydrated. Maybe a beer if you're feeling a bit festive. And if it's not <laughs> 11 o'clock in the morning or it's just after lunch. <laughs> uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're going for a rare evening performance, you're having a night out. But for me, I what I love about cinema as opposed to watching on TV is that you've got to submit to it. You know what I mean? You're not in control. The thing that now with streaming, you know, which is a, a great, great gift for people like me because you get to tell all sorts of stories that maybe you wouldn't be able to tell before. But the, the thing that it gives the audience is like this power and it's a power that is sort of an uncurated choice. So you can scroll down, scroll down, find anything you want. And sometimes you, you get that feeling that I used to get when I was in like a VHS video store when I was like, you know, 10 years old with my friend and we would spend three hours arguing about what to watch. We'd walk up and down, up and down, what should we watch? Which was, I don't know. What about this one? No, I don't want to watch that one. What about this one? Nah, seeing that one. And you do that for ages. And in the end, you just get like, I don't know, we would always end up watching License to Drive with the two Corys in it just because we both quite liked it. Uh, and so, you know, I think you sort of have that feeling with streaming of like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Whereas a cinema, you have to make the decision to go see it. You have to make time in your day. You have to go when it starts. You know, you can't start whenever you want. You can't stop it. And you've got to sit in the dark. You've got to shut up, turn your phone off. And you just got to give yourself up to it. And I think for me, if I'm sitting there with like popcorn and I'm remembering to eat my popcorn or I'm remembering to eat my Murray mints as it used to be when I was like a kid, yeah, that it, was be, uh, it, would, it, it just distracts me from it. And I just want to... I sort of want to forget I exist for a couple of hours. And then when the credits roll, you're like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, here we are. We're still we're still in London in the dark. You know, it's time to go home. I mean, that's my favorite thing about it is that you lose yourself to like this whole other thing. I totally understand. I totally understand it. I, I think also the effort that you make leaving the house, going to the cinema, attaches more value to the film that you're going to see. It's, it attaches value to sitting there. You've made the effort to leave the house as opposed to being two clicks away from any movie you like on your TV. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's it's like the difference between like, you know, getting takeout and going to a restaurant in a way. That yeah. It's, it's both good food, but it's like in the restaurant, it's like the whole experience, you know? You don't get dressed up to get, you know, get your takeout. <laughs> <laughs> you might do to go to dinner depends on the restaurant but i think that's the thing that it feels it feels special going to the cinema even if it's in the afternoon even if it's you know whatever you know even if it's not a film you're really excited to see there's just something about it something about that experience that has sitting with strangers in the dark it has that sort of magic to it right then we have everything we need we push open the doors and enter the corridor towards the auditorium now the corridor is looking a little bare at the moment so what i'm going to do is put up posters along the wall that celebrate some of your most important movie memories in the first poster we're going to put up depicts jay your fondest movie memory wow some of my fondest movie memories is when i was just becoming a cinephile um so i was like a teenager i was watching lots of stuff on vhs and i'd learn how to drive just got past my test got my license so i had freedom and like i come from a small town i come from a small town which is near leeds in north in well that's i was in north yorkshire that's in west yorkshire um and there's a cinema in leeds which is called the hyde park cinema which was used to be like a musical it was like an old flea pit cinema and they would do these all-night triple bills. And so me and my friends would go and see the last film they were showing on their regular schedule at like nine o'clock. And then, you know, sit in our car for 45 minutes after that and then go back in and watch three films in a row till about six o'clock in the morning. Um, <laughs> and we and we did that. Uh, we did the Alien, the first three Alien films, because there were only three at the time. There was the Alien right. trilogy. And mm. they're, all sh- they're all projected on film and these prints were all, you know, 
decades old, like some of them, that they were scratched to hell. They were sort of all bleached out. Um, you know, back then you would sell coffee, but I think even back then you, you could smoke in the cinema. I mean, this was like, this is the 90s. So there would be like the, you have the smoke in the air with the projector beam going through it. And it really just felt like, you know, when, when I was kind of growing up watching sort of, I don't know, Godard films, what the experience of going to the cinema should be, this sort of love, this sort of church of cinema that we were going mm -hmm. to. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, like a triple bill poster from the Hyde Park circa 1994, I guess, uh, would be, would be my, uh, would, would be my, you know, I don't know if it's the fondest, but I definitely, that definitely was a big, big moment of like, you know, it's like running a marathon, you know, that you sort of think like, wow, we did that. And it was great. That's so I, I grew up in Leeds. Uh, and so I, I know the Hyde Park cinema very well. It's, it's, I think it's, it's one of the oldest cinemas uh, in the country. And I, it was 1914 it was built. And it was, I think, to this day, it's still the oldest gaslit, or as it was back in the day, gaslit cinema. Like, can you imagine that? Like, it, like this is before sound even hit the cinema. Like, you were, people were watching in gaslight in that cinema. I know, it's amazing. And you can still feel that when you go in, because it, it's, it's not already a big cinema. It's quite small and compact. Mm. And you go in and, it, I, you know, it used to, I don't know if it, I haven't been there for like 20 years. So it used to have like, you know, the upstairs and the downstairs. You have the circle and the stalls. Um, and, you know, it, it, so people would just come in out of the cold at night. You know, you'd have people who, you know, didn't have anywhere else to go. And they sit at the back and sleep while you were watching these triple bills. And it was <laughs> it was just sort of amazing. The people, you know, you, you the guy who was serving a sort of like instant cappuccino, like that sort of cup of soup cappuccino which <laughs> yeah, is disgusting yeah, yeah. uh you know he would be like sitting sitting there like reading like Nietzsche or something while we were watching aliens it was just it just kind of felt like oh this is the world I'd like to live in when I was uh when I was you know 17 it was um it was amazing I should go back at some point and check it out I'm sure it's uh I'm sure it's just the same yeah, it's it's still there. I think they've refurbished it, but I I haven't been for years. But uh, but yeah, let's put up a triple bill for the Hyde Park Cinema in Leeds in the mid nineties. Would you would you want the Alien trilogy before it became a quadrilogy? And then let's do the Alien trilogy because it's got like it's got it's what, what, the three of the best directors that were working at the time. You know what I mean? It's like right. Ridley Scott, James Cameron, David Fincher. I mean, come on, what a triple bill, Bosh. That's it. We're putting up a poster for the triple bill of the Alien Trilogy at the Hyde Park Cinema circa 1994. Right. Time to put up our second poster. Now this, Jay, depicts your worst movie memory. And this is a tough one because even even like bad movies, I enjoy going to see them. You know what I mean? I enjoy going to the cinema. But this this is about the whole experience. So this will be a poster of Highlander 2. The Quickening, I think, was the, the subtitle of it. Because um, I really like the first Highlander, which I think I've seen on VHS, and mm. you know it's got the it's got the Queen soundtrack. It's just got swords and helicopter shots over hillsides. Looks great. It's got Sean Connery as like Spaniard. Yeah, uh, very oddly. The thing about well, Highlander one, two, one of the many Sean Connery roles where he just and they were like, "Are you going to change your accent?" He's like, "No, no, I'm, I, you know, he's a Russian submarine captain, Spanish conquistador, yeah, you know, whatever." It's like, yeah, I'm just going to do me. Chicago cop was my favorite <laughs> yeah. one of those. Yep, yep Scottish yep, yep, Chicago yep. cop. Yeah, um, here's the here's the Oscar, Sean. Doesn't matter. Have the Oscar yeah. anyway. You're that good. Yeah, but he's, yeah, but he's great in the entire show. You know, fair oh enough. My God. I think, but... Oh yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, so. Highlander 2 was the first 15 film that I managed to get into before I was 15. So I was tried and turned away many, many times. And I looked about, I don't know, 12 when I was 18. So like uh, when I was 15, I must have looked like I was a toddler. So and my friends looked a bit older. Maybe I think they just took pity on me because I was in there every week trying to get into something. Uh, and I got into 
Highlander 2 and I was so excited. I was so excited. It felt like the doors towards sort of adulthood were opening. And then the film started and it was so disappointing. I haven't seen it since, so I can't oh really God. comment. But just I remember at the time thinking, this isn't Highlander 1. This isn't as good as Highlander 1. <laughs> and, you know, sequels, sequels are tricky. And I've worked on sequels. And, you know, it's, it's very tricky. But, you know, I didn't know that then. Just then at the time, it's like that level of excitement could not have been matched by any film. Just because we were there. We were on the cusp of, like, being grown-ups. Uh, and then... We, you know, we was looking at each other, going, "Should should we stay or should should we leave?" It's like, no, we got in. <laughs> the whole point was to get in. Now we have to stay to the bitter end. So we watched all the oh. way through. I learned it too. I... So, uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, it, it, I it mean, this me a valuable is... lesson. I think. This is an upsetting worst memory uh, because obviously like your first 15 movie, you love the original and Highlander 2 is widely regarded as one of the worst films ever made. It has the stunning 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, yeah, what what did you hate? Did you hate the fact that suddenly uh, these immortals that were great in the first movie were now aliens from the planet Zeist? Was that uh, the thing that put I, you I, off? I don't, I don't think that even went in. I don't even remember that. I think it was just, it was like there was a lot happening, but I didn't care and i think that's <laughs> that's the thing like you know you can you can do lots on, on screen but if you don't care doesn't matter you know you can do very little and if you do care you're absolutely wrapped with it and so you know i think even even when i was like whatever i would have been there 13 14 i i didn't you know i it was a lesson that you learned that it's like even though the poster looks great even though the tra- trailer is really noisy when we when we saw it um before whatever it was that we were watching the week before once you get there, you have to care. And that's something that, you know, I try and try and implement every time I do anything. Yeah, it's uh, it's I, I, I get that completely. I mean, I, I to give uh, uh, the director, uh, Russell Mulcahy, um, a, a, a sort of a pass. Apparently, the investors took the movie off him and re-edited themselves. So he, he didn't get final cuts on it, which as, as a director yourself, I imagine is a heartbreaking thing uh, to even imagine to comprehend someone taking your film away from you. Yeah, I mean, that that is always your worst fear. It's like somebody kidnapping your children. You know, it's not quite as <laughs> yeah. bad as that. That would be much, much worse. But I think... <laughs> I think that the idea of that, that you put your like your heart and soul into something and you have an idea of what it should be and somebody because they disagree with you just says, no, we're going to turn it into something else. You know, it's like getting halfway through cooking a meal and they try and turn it into trifle. It's like it's never going to work. Uh, Michael Ironside, I found it. I found a lovely quote from Michael Ironside uh, about this movie. Uh, he said, I hated that script. We all did. It read as if it had been written by a 13 year old boy. I decided that if I was going to be in a piece of shit like this, I was going to be the most memorable fucking thing in it. <laughs> and he was. I mean, I love Michael Ironside. Right. I mean, he's he he just steals movies. He's always the he's, I, I mean, I just love him in everything. All of the Omen films he's been in. I love Michael Ironside. I mean, I would say. I'm now just tempted to go back and watch it just just to see what he was doing in it. <laughs> That's how I felt. That is exactly how I felt when I started reading around it. I was like, I need to watch this piece of shit again. I cannot wait. <laughs> uh, all right, then we're putting up a poster for Highlander 2, The Quickening. Uh, the next poster we're putting up depicts the last performance, Jay, that brought you to tears. Yeah, I mean, this one's maybe not so representative of my life, but it's representative of the last thing I saw uh, mm. in the cinema. Um, which at the London Film Festival, I saw the film One Life with Anthony Hopkins. Uh, and I, I defy you to not cry while you're watching that film. It, it is such a moving film uh, at the end that you you have to cry. So, uh, yeah, that was the last one. That's the last one that had me sobbing. 
Uh, it's uh, it's not out till January here. This and and, and it, it sounds it's about. Um, so it's, it's a true story, isn't it? Uh, Nicholas uh, Nicholas Winton rescuing these these children from Czechoslovakia before the the Nazi invasion. I mean, Hopkins is jo- Anthony Hopkins is just like just like pro- probably I for me at least one of the greatest, if not the greatest, actor working today. He's just so bloody watchable. Like every like he's just an incredible like a force of nature on screen. And yeah, and he does it. He, he is a force of nature, but he does it without really doing anything. I mean, it's amazing if you watch One Life and if you watch The Father, which is another one that had me in floods of tears. Oh yeah, uh, he's he's phenomenal in that film. And it's just a, that's a film just just about confusion and just about somebody losing their you know their own sense of power, and it's heartbreaking. And it's it's almost like a horror movie, but it's a horror movie that's about yourself, about you know, finding yourself trapped in your, your own body and not understanding what, what's going on. Um, no, he's fantastic. I mean, going back, you know, to the elephant man and, you know, he's just, he's just got such a, I mean, everybody knows it's not a controversial opinion that, mm. you know, he's, he's such an amazing actor, but you saw with these amazing actors, you sometimes take them for granted. So you'll see the poster for one life. You think, oh, okay, Anthony Hopkins, he's like playing an old guy. And you mm. flash back to Johnny Flynn playing the young guy. And okay, I can see that, you know, true story. And then you watch it and he's just sort of, you know, I mean, Jonathan is very good in it, and but Hopkins is just, you know, mesmerizing. He's just so, so good. Yeah, I agree with you completely about the father as well. So I walked, it's one of those rare experiences where I walked into a movie not knowing um, that it was about, um, obviously, dementia and him suffering from Alzheimer's, I believe it is. So I, I, again, I watched it thinking this could be a horror movie until you reveal that at the end. You watch it and you go, what is going on? It's such a confusing film to watch and very scary. Yeah, it sort of has all David Lynch vibes to it as you're watching it, because that's how how he's feeling about his own life. And navigating that as an actor where you're just, you know, you're getting more frustrated, but you can't, you know, there's a, there'll be a temptation to sort of explode all the time with that frustration, but he keeps it just sort of hemmed in. We talked about tension before. He's doing that in his performance, that he's sort of like locking in these feelings for as long as possible. So then when they do come out, you sort of like you're sort of like terrified, but you also get this sort of catharsis of like, oh, thank God, he's saying. But it, but it then just leads to more frustration. It's uh, it's it's a it's a very I mean, you know, it won a lot of awards because it's so powerful. It's such a powerful film, and you know, people should check it out. Uh, right, but we aren't putting up a poster for the father because that wasn't the last performance that brought you to tears. Although it did, we're putting up a poster for the upcoming movie One Life out here in the UK in January. So let's put our final poster up, and this depicts Jay your unpopular movie opinion. This is, I mean, this this is a really hard question because I I, I, I don't know. Like I, I I don't know if I have that many unpopular opinions. I, t- I tend to, especially since I started making films, I tend to give a lot of a pass to films, even if they're bad. Even Highlander 2, if I watched it now, I'd be like, oh, do you know what? They did that car crash really well. You know what I mean? I think there's always something that redeems right. film and nobody tries to make a bad film. And I'm not talking about bad films here, but I'm talking about the the my, the good film, uh, which is, I think a lot of people disagree with me when I say that by, by far, Casino Royale with Daniel Craig is the best Bond movie. By far, so you're saying there's a there's a huge gap between Casino Royale 2006 and the next Bond movie on the list. I would say so. Yeah, I say like it's it's like a ten point lead. I would say on uh, for Casino Royale. 
Okay, so so we're saying so you're saying it's better than Goldfinger, The Spy Who Loved Me from Russia with Love, uh, Skyfall, which is obviously a lot of people probably a lot of people think that's Daniel Craig's best movie. Better than all of those. Better than Thunderball. Yes, I would say so. I mean, they, they've all got great stuff in them. I mean, I love Ken Adams' design. I love a lot of the music, John Barry's music, and the constituent parts and the iconography, little moments. But as a movie, I mean, if you were to get somebody who'd never seen a Bond movie in their life, and you had to show them one of them. Just, and you had to pick the best one. I think that it comes down to two of them. It's like Honor Majesty's Secret Service and it's um, Casino Royale. Because I think in those ones, the character of Bond is the most interesting. But in Casino Royale, I think it feels to be kind of interesting, but also realistic that he's he's not sort of so erudite and so funny. And it's not like, oh, hey, look at me, I'm killing people. And it, isn't it fun? He's just sort of like, you know, a thug in a suit with a gun which sort of feels more interesting. And he sort of believes himself to be this sort of master spy by the end of it. He sort of, it's almost like people use the words Genesis story a lot, but it is, you sort of can see how he came out of the mold one way and then he's sort of trying to redefine himself another way. And for me, that sort of char- character journey with the uh, Eva Green story, as well as, you know, the, the overarching story, I think just just makes it much more involving. And for a, if you were just taking somebody, getting somebody who'd never been involved and didn't know any of the catchphrases, didn't know that, you know, everybody thinks Sean Connery is the best Bond. You know, if he got rid of all of that and you just said, watch one film, here it is, that would be the one to choose. Because I think of all of them, it's just, as a movie, is the best movie. Right then. Casino Royale from 2006. No, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing you. I certainly think from my end, the pre-title sequence where he kills the guy, earns his double O license before the titles... That's probably the greatest cold open to a Bond movie. Between that and The Spy Who Loved Me with a parachute, which is obviously great, but the one in Casino Royale is very special. Yeah, I mean, everybody loves those bits. And they, you know, you go into it knowing that's going to come, you know, knowing something's going to happen before the, you know, the better starts. <laughs> and and so there's such high expectation. And that one sort of, I, for me, sort of fulfills and zigzags and sidesteps and does in such a way that, you're kind of like, oh, okay, okay, interesting. Especially because yeah. it's a brand new Bond. And at the time when I saw it, I saw it, you know, the cinemas when it came out, you're sitting there waiting to be impressed and waiting to not like it. And I think Bond fans were waiting to not like it. And university, I think people came out of that thinking, oh yeah, we got a new Bond. This is this is interesting. People who loved it. I mean, I, for me, it was less, uh, less that for me, it was much more just sort of like, <laughs> I want a good movie, give me a good movie. And that was, uh, I came out of that one pretty satisfied. <laughs> Good stuff. So by uh, definition, then, if that's your favourite Bond movie, Daniel Craig is your favourite Bond? Uh, not necessarily. <laughs> okay, okay, fair enough. Yeah. You're not going to commit it's, to that. I think, I, think that, I think that version in Casino Royale is my favourite Bond. It's my favourite Bond. All right. Specifically okay. that film. Right, we're putting up a poster for Casino <laughs> Royale from 2006 as your unpopular movie opinion that it is the greatest Bond movie. We've arrived at the last set of doors. Now, Jay, there is a queue of people hoping to join you and Billy Wilder in the auditorium. Do you want to let them in? Do you want a busy cinema or do you want it just you and Billy? Uh, for the for the movie we're going to see, I think a full cinema is quite good. So let's let them in. Excellent. The crowd pour into the auditorium, whooping and cheering. Now, before the movie begins that you picked for us, we're going to play a few things on the big screen. And the first thing we're going to play is the trailer for the movie you are most looking forward to seeing at the cinema. Okay, so the film, because I went to the London Film Festival, I've seen quite a lot of the ones that are coming out soon. But the one that I'm really okay. looking forward to, the one that I'm really looking forward to, is Jonathan Glazer's next film. I mean, it sounds like a very hard watch, 
But yeah, but Jonathan Glazer's made some incredible films, and he makes them so infrequently that every time he gets one done, I'm so excited to see it. So Under the Skin is a film that he made, which I absolutely loved, and it just blew me away. I just I I came out of that and just couldn't do anything for like <laughs> two hours because it was it's... just it got in my brain, and and then after that you know like two months later i was still thinking about it so that that to me was very special film so i'm really looking forward to his new one yeah i mean that's the stuff in the the pool with the 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 flesh the meats on the conveyor belt in under the skin it haunts me to this day it's amazing so yeah this is zone of interest this is a story about the commandant uh the auschwitz concentration camp Basically, trying to create a beautiful life for him and his family in the house next to the camp. It sounds, it sounds like it's going to be heavy, but Jonathan Glazer is a man who can deliver stuff like that. So, yeah, very exciting. Let's play the trailer for Zone of Interest. Uh, right next up on the big screen, we are playing the moment from movies that makes you literally or metaphorically pump your fist in the air. For me, this always has to do with like character rather than like you know we're talking about Bond earlier. It's like you know there's there's a parachute in Bond and everybody like with the Union Jack on it and everybody's like, you know, punches the air. But I, for me, it's always to do with like, you just want something to happen so badly in a film that it's about getting that satisfaction in the moment. Like that little feeling, that little tingle goes up and down your spine. And there's, there's a film by Michael Mann called The Insider, which has Al Pacino and Russell Crowe in it, which is a fantastic film, uh, which is about a whistleblower uh, who works in the tobacco industry, who's blowing the whistle on the big companies who knew about the health risks of tobacco, about but keeping them secret. And there's one scene, because he's signed like so many NDAs, he's not meant to be telling anybody what he knows about the research he did. And he goes to this deposition scene. And I love a courtroom drama. I'm a big fan of a courtroom drama. So they're in this deposition scene, which is like this little box of a room. And he's on the stand. He doesn't really even say anything in this scene because it's his lawyer is talking to him. His lawyer is played by Bruce McGill, who's a fantastic character actor, who I love. Every time he pops up in anything, I'm like, yeah, Bruce McGill. Um, <laughs> So that was, even then, I didn't literally punch the air. Just, you just did. seeing Bruce McGill. <laughs> literally, uh, just saying his name. You were like, Bruce McGill. <laughs> yeah, I'm like that with all character actors. If somebody pops up like that, I'm like, oh, yeah, make him Blair. Come on. Um, so, so like, Bruce McGill pops up as his lawyer, and he's trying to get the, the um, Russell Crowe character, the whistleblower, to basically say what he's not allowed to say. Like, to say that, that, the, tobacco, that the tobacco industry knew this, these, these terrible things. And he's trying to ask the question. And every time he asks the question, the opposing lawyer interrupts him and says, objection, 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 objection. And it's such a smug corporate lawyer. And they cast him really well. I can't remember the name of the actor. And like Bruce McGill just turns around to him like with a big, just sort of like amiably and starts this speech. Because like the guy says something like, you know, we've got rights. And like Bruce McGill's, McGill says, no, you've got rights. You've got lefts. You've got ups. You've got downs. And the guy is just looking at Bruce McGill like, yeah, I don't care. I don't care anything you got to say. He's got like a big sort of like, you know, I get paid more than you do grin on his face. And Bruce McGill just slaps him down with this brilliant moment where he just shouts, you know, wipe that smirk off your face. And as he does it, you just get the shiver up your spine. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, you know, because that guy is just so smug and is representing everything in the movie that you hate. That in that moment, you just like, because the, the film doesn't give you many releases. It's such a tense movie and it's such a frustrating movie because the world doesn't work right, basically. There's a film about how the world doesn't work right. That in that moment, it just gives you the moment. Um, and I love it. And it's uh, I often just go watch it. Like, it's on YouTube, like the two-minute clip, and I often just go watch that moment. If I'm feeling kind of like a little bit 
little bit, it's all grumpy and there's, it's grey outside and a bit drizzly. I'll, I'll go and watch Bruce McGill do his do his thing. It's like watching a, it's like watching sort of like a, a gymnast do a perfect ten routine or something. It's amazing. It's he he really does roar the line as well. It's an incredible moment. I love it. Um, Famously, Russell Crowe uh, bulked up for for the movie The Insider. He uh, on a diet of cheeseburgers and bourbon. Uh, he put on weight to play the character Jeffrey Wingard. Um, talking of transformations, which is why I introduced uh, that. Um, Nathan Stewart Jarrett. He got he got big. He bulked up. Yeah, that's that's like I said. I've not seen him like this before. No. So Nathan, yeah, he worked really really hard because the character um, of Joe has a nickname for part of the show, which is Muscle. And so, you know, Nathan's quite quite a lithe character in, you know, you've known him in sort of misfits as he's quite wiry. But, you know, he was on a special diet and he was doing a training regimen like every day. Um, and he worked so hard because we shot for 135 days or something like that. And like every, you know, every day he was turning up to set at like 6 a.m. He'd already been in the gym for two hours before before that. And so, you know, he was really dedicated and really bulked up and did, did all the work and did all the stunt training. And, uh, and it really paid off because he looks, I mean, he does look sort of transformed in it. He do, you do sort of just see him as this character rather than as the guy you recognize from Misfits or Utopia or Candyman. And he, and he needs it as well because there's some brutal action in it. There's uh, some brutal action. So it's a sh- I don't know if it was shot in Chelsea, but it's set in Chelsea. It's fantastic. Like it's really yeah. You, know, you know when you're like, I I, I did <laughs> I did have that moment where I'm like, is this on Disney? Because I was like, this is gruesome stuff. It's great. <laughs> well, it's not as gruesome as you think. You think you see things, but you don't really. It's that old trick of like we do a lot with sound design and uh, very fast cuts that you think you've seen a bit more than you really have. But I mean, that scene is great because I got to work with um, Colin Salmon. Talk about Bond movies. He was great in the, in the Pierce oh. Brosnan Bond movies. Um, yeah. Always turned up and sold And again, that's like, he's like Bruce McGill if I'm watching something and he turns up. It's like, Colin Salmon, you know? So the great joy of being a director and being able to cast these things is that, you know, as a film fan, you know, I'm sure you're the same. You collect these little character actors that you see in things. You know, the Coens do this all the time. They have these brilliant little character actors who are normally turning up to steal the show and they'll put them right in the middle. They did that with... Uh, Steve Buscemi, they did it with, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Bill H. Macy. Uh, and, you know, you find, you know, you give them the whole, the whole show on their character. And it was, you know, I, I really enjoyed them doing that with like Eddie Marzan and Alice Creed. Um, and, in, you know, having character actors like, like Damien um, Young and Macon Blair and Isaiah Whitlock in, in I Care A Lot, like these actors I have in my head that I just get you know, it's, it's like I can invite, like, it's like that thing where people say, who would you invite around your table for your perfect dinner party? And for me, it's just sort of like character actors of the 1940s, 50s and 70s. Like, yeah, we'll have, let's have John Cazale. You know, why not? Let's bring him in. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's a real joy having having opportunities to work with that. And, you know, the thing about Nathan is that for most of his, you know, the things that he's known for, he's he's been the leading things before, but in this, in, he's mostly known in more commercial projects as the guy who pops up and steals a scene. You know, he's that sort of character actor. So to put him front and center and let him spread his wings and you know just sort of do do the whole thing was was great. It was amazing. It was just you know so much fun to watch. Yeah, he's he is fantastic in culprits. All right, uh, we've got a few things left to do before we get to the movie that you're playing. So let's crack on. Next, we're playing what you consider Jay Cinema's most shocking moment. So the, the most shocking moment. The most. This is literally the moment that shocked me so much that I I remember watching this film when I was probably slightly too young for it. And I was like a middle teenager and I was watching it with my dad. And I think it was on the BBC or something late at night, starting at like 10 o'clock. So we'd finished watching it. 
about 12 and we both had to stay up for like another two and a half hours afterwards chit chatting because we were both so shaken by it that we couldn't go to bed because we just knew we'd be lying in bed with our eyes wide open with this thing churning around in our head so the film i'm talking about is the original version of the vanishing the 1988 version of The Vanishing, which was remade in Hollywood. I haven't seen the remake, so I can't speak to that. But this is the original 1988 version, which is, I believe, by George Sluiser. I think I'm very bad at pronouncing names. Um, and I, mean, I don't want to spoil the ending, hmm. but the whole, the whole thing is a guy on a mission who wants to find out one piece of information. He's got a piece of information he really wants to know. And as a viewer, you're on this journey with him, and you want to find out this piece of information too. And you'll, and like, by the end of the film, he will do anything to find it out. And you want him to do anything to find it out. You're sort of so complicit. And he has this opportunity to find out. But it's a very dangerous opportunity. And the question is, does he take that opportunity or not? And his decision leads to this cut, this one of this like amazing cuts in cinema, where just over the like like that, the whole film changes for you. And you're like, oh my God, oh no, oh, oh, oh. And it just gets in your brain like uh like a staple or something and fest is there and you're like oh my oh and then the film ends and you're like <laughs> how could you do that to me i can only imagine going to like the first screening event people go what no <laughs> oh my god that's brilliant but oh no and it's a brilliant film but uh, it is it's so shocking i don't know if you i don't know it, if you've seen it but it's I, uh i i have and just hearing you describe it is reliving the uh the, the it's just one of those and well done thank you for not spoiling it i think that's it is something that people need to experience themselves. But yeah, okay. The end of The Vanishing is what you consider cinema's most shocking moment. I believe Stanley Kubrick uh, called it the most terrifying film he's ever seen, which is, gives you an idea of just what The Vanishing is. Brilliant. Love it. Uh, all right. Next, nearly towards the movie. Next, uh, the line or piece of dialogue from a movie that most affected you. We're going to play through the Dolby Atmos speakers. Oh, so I'm a dialogue guy. You know, mm. I, I like dialogue in my movies. Billy Wilder's dialogue, I love, like, you know, we talked about Aaron Sorkin before. And so this piece of dialogue affected me. So it's not on an emotional level. This, this, this writer-director really, really inspired me. I remember seeing his films for the first time when I was in Harrogate. I actually sent off for a video, uh, you know, from the back of a magazine of, of one of his films because I'd heard about him, but I'd never seen anything. And that director is Hal Hartley, who was quite big at the time in the 90s, but sort of vanished off the sorts of the, the movie canon. And I I really, I really loved his films. I just sort of wanted to make those films, really, when I first started. And I loved I loved his use of dialogue. And there's a one of his films is called Simple Man. And it sort of really sums up his kind of his kind of world. And it and it really for like two years I was basically writing writing scripts in the in the style of Hal Harley. Then I got over it. But, you know, like when you're, <laughs> when you're a covers band and you sort of play Led Zeppelin for a long time and then you get your own sound, it's like, Hal Harley was my Led Zeppelin. Um, and so there's this, there's this piece of dialogue between the two characters. One's called Ned and one's called Bill. And so Ned, Ned says, you know, he's like a frustrated man who wants to be sort of a hero, basically. And he says, I want adventure. I want romance. And Bill says back to him, Ned, there's no such thing as adventure. There's no such thing as romance. There's only trouble and desire. And I've always loved that because it's it really sums up the kind of cinema I like, which is people <laughs> who want to be heroes who realize that being a hero is really difficult. And actually, there's no good deed that goes unpunished. And the world's complicated. 
and everything you want, you know, trouble and desire can also be very exciting. I mean, like, you know, most film noir is just trouble and desire, right? Mm. But, you know, it's the difference between A movies, which are adventure and romance, and B movies, which are trouble and desire. I'll, I'll always want to be in the trouble and desire. I, I, I love it. I, I, I looked it up after uh, after I heard that you were going to pick Hal Hartley because I he's I don't know him at all. So this was a real journey for me um, discovering Simple Men. Um, but yeah, it's it dialogue is great. I, there's a lovely moment in Culprits at the start uh, where uh, Joe Nathan's character stops at the stop sign and his kids are like, "There's nothing coming. There's never anything coming," and you know full well from the opening something's most certainly coming for him. It's a lovely bit of foreshadowing. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of little bits like that. Um, and that's a fun thing when you're writing. The fun thing is to imagine the actors saying it, imagine people watching it. And I, and as a viewer, you want, you want that, you want that sort of sweet, the sort of sweetness of guessing and feeling that something might happen. And you guess, you know, cause if you guess right, then you feel smart and that's a great experience. And if you guess wrong, you kind of go, ah, oh, you got me. And that's also a great experience. So it's really nice to like foreshadow and let people sort of feel feel clever and sometimes reward that and sometimes punish them for it. You know, and that's, uh, you can do it through action and you can do it through dialogue. And uh, I mean, Al Harley does that quite a lot. Uh, good. Well, that was a nice uh, little uh, experience for me. So thank you uh, for that, Jay. I like discovering Hal Hartley. Uh, right then, I Final thing before you announce the movie you've picked for us is for you to tell us, Jay, we're going to play it through the speakers, the best use of music in a movie. And I'll keep on saying this, but this is really hard because I love, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting in my office, which has like a floor to ceiling bookcase, which is absolutely rammed with vinyl, most of which are film soundtracks. So <laughs> I'm a huge, huge film soundtrack fan. And, you know, I, I love working on scores. I've worked with some really talented composers and I'm, I've worked with a, a guy called Mark Cannon on Culprits, who also did I Care a Lot. And, you know, I, you know, I was going to pick something that was score, but I, cho I chose something which isn't score, which sort of very deliberately isn't score, because this is a film where a score was written and then they didn't use it, and it was replaced with, um, with licensed music. And one of those pieces of licensed music is the one that I've chosen. So the film is 2001, A Space Odyssey, and the piece of music is, and I can say his name, right? Uh, Georgi Ligeti's Requiem 2 which is, if you don't remember that offhand from your Spotify playlist, you know, <laughs> this piece of music is when anybody sees the monolith. So when the, um, the, the sort of primitive man, ape man at the beginning, see the, mo see the monolith, you hear this really scary music. And then next time you see it on, uh, I think on the moon, uh, you hear this really scary music. And it's just this sort of weird choral disquieting kind of like noise which is musical and it is human but feels so alien and so scary and i remember i remember seeing it was 2001 for the first time i got it i think somebody bought it for my birthday once when i think i was 16 on like widescreen vhs so i saw it on like a small square tv in like widescreen so it's like a little tiny strip across the middle of this tiny tv with these tinny speakers and i watched it and i thought there's some cool visuals of this but why is everybody banging on about it you know what i mean and then I went to university and they showed it like on a, like, I don't know what, it, was, it looked like it was a 70 millimeter print. It was like an old print of it with a sound whacked up. And it was just amazing. It was such an experience. I totally got what people saw in it. But those moments when that music came up, you could just feel it. You could feel your like stomach tightening. You could feel like, you know, like your throat closing because it's just, it's just people walking slowly towards a black oblong and this music is doing all the work and you're like don't go close to the oblong <laughs> stay away from the oblong 
and there's this thing that's just going, and you're like, oh my god, and it's so affecting. And if yeah. you, you know, if you watch it, watch it on mute without that music, and like the the visuals are brilliant, but it just doesn't have the same effect at all. And it's that music, and and you know, I've I've listened, I haven't listened to it recently, but I've listened to the the score that was written. The score that was written was really good. But I think, you know, Kubrick made exactly the right choice in using that piece of music in that moment, because for that moment, I think it did change cinema, because after that, people were using much weirder music and they were using it in like horror films. Before that, it was very much like Bernard Herrmann's Strings, which I love, you know, but it was like a proper score. And after that, if you go to the horror movies of the 70s, where it's like it's all synthesized and it's Goblin and it's, you know, and Michael Mann using Tangerine Dream and we talk about Under the Skin, you know, the, the Mika Levi score for that, which is... Again, really, really unsettling and brilliantly done. I mean, I, to me, it feels like that was the genesis, that moment in uh, in 2001 that sort of like opened the door for people to be able to do that. Uh, you hit the nail on the head. I rewatched it in preparation for this, and it's it's just so unnerving, that especially that first scene with the primitive man um, and, and just it's like because they're screeches. Initially, you can hear them, and gradually the... The music overpowers them and they're drowned out. And then it's just this wall of sound coming. It's brilliant. 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 What a what a great choice. Jay, we're here. Thank you. We've arrived. It is time now to announce to this packed auditorium and Billy Wilder himself, the movie out of all others you have picked for us to watch tonight. Jay, what are we watching? Of course, Alex, we're going to be watching Johnny Guitar, directed by Nicholas Ray. Of course we are. Why, why wouldn't we be watching 1954's Johnny Guitar? Tell me. Um, I, ju- I just love it. I saw it. I was shown it at um, university. I, I, didn't know, I, mean, I knew a little bit about Nicholas Ray because I'd seen Rebel Without a Cause. So he's the director of Rebel Without a Cause. And he's made an amazing film noir called uh, In a Lonely Place with Humphrey Bogart. He's made some amazing films. Uh, and he's made a film uh, called The Lusty Men, which I almost chose, which is a Robert Mitchum film, which is very hard to see. And they did it at the BFI like a few years ago, and I like ran to get a ticket. Um, <laughs> and I have a poster of that on my wall. But Johnny Guitar was probably the first one I saw of his. And I, the, I was just like, my mouth was like open watching it all the way through. And since I've like discovered it was a big fan, you know, the, the French New Wave loved it. Scorsese loves it. It's one of these films that is just so bizarre, but just so watchable. I mean, it's a it's a western. Johnny Guitar is played by Sterling Hayden, um, mm. but he's not really the main character. Sterling Hayden, who you may know from uh, Doctor Strangelove uh, or The Killing, another Kubrick film. If you you know, or you may he's he's the guy who Al Pacino shoots in the neck in The Godfather as well. If you remember that. So, uh, spoiler alert. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> But he he plays this guy called Johnny Guitar, who's a cowboy who plays guitar the whole time. But actually, he's sort of a drunken six shooter, sort of uh, kind of dangerous outlaw. And he turns up to sort of be the the protector bodyguard of this woman called Vienna, who is played by Joan Crawford in an amazing performance. Um, and the whole thing is so turned up to eleven. It's like turned up to thirteen. It's like the colors turn up. You know, the use of color is amazing. He he was great at using Technicolor. Oh, I, I think it's like it might be one of those weird 50s colors that never caught on, but it looks kind of like semi-color. She's wearing like reds and yellows and uh, and the, she's up against these sort of puritanical town folk who want to run her out of town. 
And it's such a such a kind of moving, weird, exciting hybrid of genres. It's sort of about McCarthyism. Mm. You know, it's sort of about movies themselves. Um, it's been quoted everywhere. If you've, if you've ever seen Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, the opening scene is um, the main character and her ex-boyfriend redubbing a film into Spanish from, from English. And that's the film they're dubbing. There's a famous scene in it where, you know, there's a love scene where she says, lie to me, tell me that you've always loved me. And then Stunning Hayes says, I've always loved you. And it's like, is he telling the truth? Is he lying? <laughs> and it's it's such a weird, enjoyable film that everybody I show it to, you know, when, you, when, when it starts, they're like, what the hell's this? This is so so weird and by the time they finish it they're like oh that was brilliant love it one of my favorite films now i remember when we were preparing i care a lot um we had like a month or so in london um before when we knew we were going to get it made before we went over to boston to shoot it and rosamund would come over to my flat and we'd watch movies and so we'd watch films with kind of characters or you know things that were references and one of the films we watched was johnny guitar um because the performance of joan crawford is this this woman that doesn't care if anybody likes her she's got her mission she's going to stick to it she's going to do anything she can but there's emotion there and there's a strength there and there's this this look you know this sort of striking powerful look she dresses like in as a cowboy throughout mm-hmm. it you know um you know and it's got such great dialogue you know there's a bit where mercedes mccambridge who plays a sort of rival who is the voice of the demon in the exorcist uh the, uh, the voice of reagan when the demon's talking through her uh, she's in it and she has this this line that uh, I can't remember her line but Joan Crawford's line is uh, that's big talk for such a small gun you know it's, it's <laughs> things it's things like that that it's like so it's like a film noir but in a western and no it's just I think if you haven't seen it go watch it because it's such such good fun um, and uh, I think sort of even though I don't make anything that's close to it it's always it's films like that that sort of always have an influence you somehow because it just makes you want to watch more movies I, I, I think I, I found uh, uh, Nicholas Ray talking about the experience of it. And by all accounts, it wasn't easy to shoot. There were a few disputes between uh, the cast on set. Not everyone was getting on. Um, and he said, uh, quite a few times I would have to stop the car and vomit before I got to work in the morning. I mean, have, have, <laughs> have you ever had such a visceral reaction to like a directing a project? Have you ever physically gone, oh, this is affecting me on a physical level? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of it's just tiredness and stress, but <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's there's so much pressure. I mean, you have like all this material you've got to get in a day, uh, but you want everybody to be a collaborator. But if people don't, people aren't trying to make the same movie. If you know, if actor has a big idea that doesn't fit into what you want, it, it's it's hard, you know, and it's you care so much about this thing, you're sacrificing so much for this thing that it does. It takes over your life. It takes over your physicality. You can it, it changes who you are for a little while. And mm. I can imagine, you know, I've never t- pulled over and thrown up because I was <laughs> so so stressed about about the day. But you know, not far off, you know. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, it's that it's that weird thing, isn't it? Um, that sometimes people don't really quite understand what the director's role is on a film set. It's, it's not just setting up a shot. It's being the, the, the end call for every single decision that every department is making costume, uh, you know, makeup, uh, set design, everything. Finally, you are the one who has to go yay or nay to every decision. Yeah, that's true. And it's, it is about it's constant decision-making or pushing things back that, you know, cause often you, you end up with like, three things to choose from and it's either you know you pick one or you say it's none of these bring me more yeah. um 
because you're just sometimes it's because you've got something in your mind that you really want and you've described it and they've not quite you know got the thing you've described and other times you, you're not quite sure and then they show you stuff and you're like well no i now, I now know it's not this way you go down entirely <laughs> the wrong word but i think you probably end up making something like you know 400 decisions a day and you sort of a lot of them just have to be yes no you know you go to i go to like a prop show and tell and they kind of like here's five key reads you go that one here's like 10 phone cases that one it's like it's like you're at an auction it's like yep 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 yeah and people go <laughs> put post-its on them as you're pointing at them because i've only got seven minutes before my costume meeting where i've got to do exactly the same thing you know so um because of that you have to work mostly on instincts you can't you know i mean when you've got more time i'm sure there's you know directors who who get you know bigger budgets and more time but the problems are always the same that you never have enough time to get everything everything right and there's that fincher quote which is like you know films films are never finished they're just abandoned and i think there's <laughs> i think there's some truth to that is that you do the best you can and then then you're done you know and then you you walk away and it becomes somebody else's and that's you know culprits has just come out on on disney plus and now i have experience of it was for such a long time it was mine and i was the protector of it and i've and now it's gone and now it's everybody else's it's out out in the world and it, you just have to go and watch it live its own life. And there's something very strange about that, but also sort of marvellous. Jay, the curtains are closing on Johnny Guitar. That is it. The guests are milling out, smiling, chatting, and thanking you for taking them on an incredible night out of the movies. But before we go, it's time for this week's mystery question as we ask, What's in the box? I saw you with the box. What was in the box? Oh, what's in the box? Uh, so, seeing this for the first time, actual box, immersive, uh -huh. immersive theatre. Ooh. Tension, tension. Tension, tension. Having just finished the brilliant crime series Culprits and with James Bond about to undergo a new era, would you ever consider directing a Bond movie if Barbara Broccoli asks? I mean, that's it. <laughs> it's on brands. <laughs> I think, of course, I mean, the answer is, of course, you'd consider it. Uh, but, you know, it depends on how much control you get, right? It's like... Would like you want to write it as well? Decisions. You'd want to write I would, it, I guess. I would love to write it. I'd love to write it. And I'd love to be able to direct all of it. I mean, you get... You have a lot of second-year directors. And I think, you know, they've, they've talked to Chris Nolan about maybe doing it. And I think mm. the sticky point for that might be that he just has to be in control of everything. So they says another bring us a Bond film, and then he brings you one back. I probably would be quite quite a sort of uh, uh, keeping my cards to my chest as much as that. But but yeah, I mean the thing about culprits that I really enjoyed was marrying this character and this action and the action sequences and some of the heist work. And in episode one, we have a flashback that a lot of that is in this similar kind of world. So I really like a challenge. So if they came a knocking, I would uh, certainly uh, open the door, <laughs> ask him in, have a cup of tea, see what they have to say. You know. Lovely stuff. Jay, your taxi has arrived to ferry you back to reality. But before you go, let's recap your perfect afternoon at the cinema. You are going with Billy Wilder. Afternoon, just after lunch is the time we're going. You are sitting in the middle, but near the left-hand aisle because it's perfect for you, both in terms of seating, escape, and hearing. You are not having a single thing to eat. 
You might have a beer, depending on what time of day it is, or just a water. You are a purist. It is a monastic experience for you. We're putting up a poster for your fondest movie memory, which is a triple bill of the Alien trilogy at the Hyde Park Cinema in Leeds. The second poster depicting your worst movie memory is watching Highlander 2. It was the first 15 you ever got into, and it ain't very good, although we do kind of want to watch it again. The third poster is the last performance that brought you to tears, which is One Life, starring Anthony Hopkins. The movie poster that depicts your unpopular movie opinion is the 2006's Casino Royale. It's the best Bond movie by a country mile. The trailer that we're playing for the movie you're most looking forward to seeing at the cinema is Jonathan Glazer's Zone of Interest. The movie moment that makes you metaphorically or literally pump your fist in the air is Bruce McGill saying, wipe that smirk off your face in The Insider. The most shocking moment in cinema for you is the end, no spoilers, of The Vanishing. The line or piece of dialogue is from Hal Hartley's Simple Men. I want adventure, I want romance. Ned, there is no such thing as adventure, there's no such thing as romance, there's only trouble and desire. The best use of music in a movie is Georgi Ligeti's Requiem when the black monolith appears in 2001 before we all enjoy 1954's Nicholas Ray director Johnny Guitar, Jay Thank you for taking us on a trip to the movies. Have you had a good time? It's been marvellous. Thank you very much, Alex. And as Jay's cab carries him away from our virtual cinema, off into the distance, we must all leave his movie paradise and return to reality. But to soften the blow, how would you like a pair of tickets for a night out at a very real Odeon cinema? Each week we give away a pair to someone who leaves us a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. It's that simple. So jump on there, leave us a review, and if I read it out, we will send you some tickets. The competition is only open to UK residents, and the tickets exclude Odeon Leicester Square and Odeon Lux. And just before I say my final farewell for this episode, don't forget, you can find the full video for today's Jay Blakeson interview and indeed for every guest on our Trip to the Movies YouTube channel. So please head over there and, as I said at the start, help us grow the podcast by subscribing. And that really is it. I'll be back next week when another guest fills our cinema with their celluloid dreams as they take us on a trip to the movies. Bye-bye.